Good morning. morning. And let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful to call you our Father. We're so thankful for Jesus, and we we thank you for the liberties that we have to be able to worship and and praise you and share the truths that you've given us. We ask that your spirit will join us today, enlighten our minds, and help us to become effective representatives at this time in history, Lord, to prepare the world for your return. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson uh, five in the uh, quarterly Genesis, and uh, just before we get into the lesson, uh, we're not going to talk about uh, COVID today. But I want to remind you to look past the news distraction of the Ukraine. And that's a terrible tragedy. And we're not diminishing what's happening to the people there. But the, the, the way the media is sucking up all the time, you might miss some of the important information coming out related to COVID. Like the governor's report that just came out this week, documenting that, uh, a, grading them, A, B, C, D, F, and an F minus. One governor got an F minus. On the impact on their states, both health-wise, economic-wise, poverty-wise, um, overdose-wise, all the different, uh, you know, out, um, benefits or outcomes to the health of their, uh, people. And, uh, all the states that got A's were Republican except one, 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 one Democrat. And all the states that got F's were, were Democrat. Uh, but uh, two, two Republicans got D's. And so as you look at this, this is not Democrat or Republican. All the A's, uh, the Colorado governor, who's a Democrat, got an A. Why did he get an A? And why did the rest of the, the Republicans get it? Because those who had the most liberty, had the least restrictions, the least shutdowns, the least mandates, uh, in other words, the law of liberty, God's law was, was applied to the best of the ability. Those states had the best outcomes uh, regarding the health of their people as well as the economics and everything else going on in their states. And those who were most restrictive, uh, violating liberties, mandating closures, uh, and so forth, had the worst outcomes. And uh, so it's not a, a Democrat or Republican issue um, by party. It is a method that we apply. However, it also exposes that there is a philosophical difference that I've articulated in here in the past. And this is why some people think I'm political when I'm actually only advocating the principles of God. But one party leans much more towards what we call autonomy, promoting your independence, giving you the liberty to make decisions for yourself. And another party leans towards what we call paternalism, where the people in power know better than you, and they're the parent who should parent you and tell you what you should do. And this is the big philosophical difference politically. When I advocate for liberty, those who are on the paternalistic mindset that think I'm actually advocating for political party when I'm actually not. Uh, other other data has come out. So that was the governor's report. And then other data uh, articles have come out. Uh, f- uh, the Pfizer's 18, I think 18,000 pages of released from the FDA that were submitted to Pfizer before the approval. And in those pages, oh, lo and behold, surprise, surprise, um, much of what has been borne out in reality was already known. Those who've had at least two of the injections uh, in the data have higher rates of reinfection or infection, higher hospitalization rates, and higher death rates than those who are not vaccinated. Uh, this was known before they were released. And this typical bad outcome stuff when you do studies, um, the negative outcomes, uh, there's phases of studies. First phases look at basically do you, do you have a uh, can you can you separate from placebo and what your endpoint is? The third phase looks at well, what's the negative outcomes and side effects that we haven't identified yet. And the third phase of uh, these injections doesn't finish until 2024. So anyway, the, the, that data is out there. If you're interested, I encourage you to keep watching and looking. Lesson five: All nations and Babel. And the memory text is Genesis 11:9, and it says therefore. 
Its name is called Babel, Babel or Babel, uh, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Why did the Lord confuse the languages? They couldn't, so they wouldn't continue building the tower. Was it punishment for sin or something else? Did God have a purpose other than stopping them from building the tower? To scatter scatter them, it says in the text. Was it an act of vengeance because of their rebelliousness or an act of love and mercy? The second paragraph in the lesson reads, However, the line is broken by the Tower of Babel. Uh, Once again, God's plans for humankind are disrupted. What was supposed to be a blessing, the birth of all nations, becomes another occasion for another curse. The nations unite in order to try to take God's place. God responds in judgment on them. And through the resulting confusion, the people get scattered throughout the world, thus fulfilling God's original plan to fill the earth. Hmm. What law lens do you hear the word judgment through? What kind of judgment is this? God is a magistrate. You've broken the rules. I find you guilty. Here is your sentence. and I'm punishing you. Or do you see it medically, diagnostically? He diagnoses the hearts and the condition, and with his infinite knowledge, he diagnoses what is the outcome without intervention. Like a doctor sees a malignancy in somebody, and it's early, it's stage one, and he diagnoses malignancy, but he also can diagnose what will happen in the progression if we don't intervene and where that will lead. And so God diagnoses, and and then he judges What is the best therapeutic intervention to stop this downward spiral? So he made a judgment. They're in rebellion. Uh, Their hearts are hardening. Uh, I will make a judgment of a therapeutic intervention that will stop the the, uh, collusion in rebellion. But since God knows the end from the beginning, he knew what they were going to do anyway before he made the judgment. Yep. Okay. He knew they were going to do it. Did he cause them to do it? No. So foreknowledge is not causation. But also, I felt that even the angels don't know what the future holds, so he did that to show the other worlds and the angels that he was a just God. 1 Corinthians 4.9, this world is a, uh, we are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. This is no question, it's a lesson book. So the theme of scripture, though, what is the central theme of scripture? God is love. Okay, I love that. That's true. Absolutely true. And the purpose of revealing God is love is because Satan misrepresents his character. So we're in a war over God's character and the central theme of Scripture, Genesis 3.15. After Adam sins, a Messiah is promised who will, if you've seen me, seen the Father, Father and I want to reveal the truth about God, God's character of love, bring that truth to us to displace or destroy the lies. But the whole plan of salvation, which centers around God, 1 Corinthians, uh, no, 2 Corinthians 10, that we live in the world, we don't wage wars, the world does, the weapons we use are not worldly, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What do we demolish? Every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. This is a central issue in the whole war. Satan's lied about God. Those lies were believed. We become infected with fear and selfishness. The whole world in Adam is now dying of a terminal condition. We're dead in trespass and sin. 
God loved us too much to let us die as a species, so he promised, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is coming to crush the serpent's head. A Messiah is coming to change the outcome, to alter the trajectory. The trajectory of humankind in Adam is nothing but death. Jesus became sin, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So he alters and opens a new pathway for all who trust him. This was the per- So the whole theme of Scripture is coming Messiah. Reveal the truth about God, deal with the sin problem, open an avenue for salvation for all who have faith or trust. This is what's, and Satan is working to stop it, to shut down the avenue. We talked about that regarding the flood. So here at Tower of Babel, after the flood, what is Satan working on the people to do? To rebel again, to unite as a worldwide, complete population hardened against God that he had at the time of the flood, except for one man. This is, this is what's happening. There's a larger war going on. So we read the, the story of the Tower of Babel and all the history of Scripture, and this is the, why the Scripture lens focuses where it focuses. You don't read anything about what's happening in China in Scripture. Or the Incan people, or the Mayan people. It's not that God doesn't love them. He does. Messiah is not coming through that branch of the human family. The focus of Scripture is plan of salvation, coming Messiah. And after... Christ comes, this will inform you about Bible prophecy in the focus. The focus is on the people who take the gospel to the world. And this is why it ends up focusing on the system that uh, sets up in, in, in Europe. Because that's where the gospel message is, is coming, and that's where Satan is working to obstruct it. This is the whole theme. So Satan is working to unite the world in a worldwide rebellion against God again, just like at the time of the flood, to stop the plan of salvation. And uh, this is the Tower of Babel is part of Satan's attack against God's plan. Thus, God intervenes to thwart his attempt to unite the whole world again in a worldwide confederacy against God. I, I think this is if you've read about a certain power that comes up out of the abyss, and it once was, and then was not, but will exist again for a short time, but come to its destruction in Revelation. My view of that power is the worldwide confederation. The global, uh, and it once was before the flood. It has not been since the flood. But will come up out of the abyss. The abyss is where Satan is, his power. Before the second coming, when the whole world confederates with him again against God, except for the elect. And this is what Satan has been working to achieve through history. Unite the world against God. Were the people building the tower because, as a group, the entire world stopped believing in God, or because they believed in him, but they didn't trust him? They didn't trust him. In other words, they believed he existed, but they didn't trust him to not destroy the world. And what does it say about the use of power to achieve what God wants? Can, and what, what is it old me God that wants? Doesn't he want intimacy with us? Uh, what the Bible describes that oneness. Represented in the marriage, the two shall become one, united in love. Separate individuals, but hearts bonded in other-centered love, self-sacrifice, and service, trust. Can God get our love, our affection, our friendship, our trust, our loyalty, our devotion 
by threatening to kill us if we don't give it to him. You couldn't get that from your spouse. God can't get it from us. So not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works as Lord and the Spirit of truth and love. So he presents truth and love and leaves us free. This is how it works. And so we see the use of power here at the Tower of Babel was not to win converts. God used power many times in Scripture. The ten plagues of Egypt, the, the Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the 185,000 Assyrians. Many times God used power. Uh, 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 Mount Carmel. What was the purpose of his power? He wasn't winning love and trust. You see, every time that the people uh, followed him because of power, uh, oh, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, Carmel. Do you have loyalty and faithfulness and trustworthy followers after that? No. When you follow somebody based on fear, you conform behavior, but you still don't trust. God wasn't actually winning converts with the use of power. He was doing several other things. One, he was keeping open avenue for Messiah. Two, just like a parent who has some unruly children doing things that are quite destructive, does the parent ever raise their voice? Even threaten. And will you win more love and trust in that moment? Or do you just simply stop the chaos long enough, hopefully, the prayer is, they'll start listening. Start engaging. Start understanding why it upsets you to see them in their destructive behavior. And thus, this is what you see at Sinai, when they were worshiping a golden calf, and God thunders and makes all these threats and so forth. You can't actually win anybody to love and trust if they're caught up in some type of chaos where they can't listen. And thus, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God sometimes used power to frighten the she-bears, okay, to frighten long enough for people to begin to listen. And then when you do listen, right at Sinai, when the people were all afraid, don't let God talk to us, he'll kill us. Moses, right there, Exodus 20, says, there's no need to be afraid. How is it possible Moses can say there's no need to be afraid and the people are terrified? Because he knew God. He, he knew God. He knew God. He knew the reason for the thunder. He knew that God was only doing this to stop them from destroying themselves. He knew that God was only doing this to, to lead them back to the path of everlasting life. It was for their good. But if you don't know God, you just hear the thunder. Terrifying. Scary. And you misperceive that God's the threat. Parents do this with their children. Parents who have children that are disobedient and playing in the street, even though the parent says not to, the parent may... Raise their voice, and not only raise their voice, pull them off the street and warm their bottom. And the child at that age will view the problem of playing in the street is mommy and daddy will punish. Thus the threat, the threatening agent is not the traffic, it's not the car, it's mommy and daddy. But it's interesting, when kids mature, they understand what it was the parents were doing. When we mature in our faith, we understand why God... So the parent steps in 
and for a period of time allows the child, steps in between the child and reality, because the child can't understand it all, and allows for a while the child to view the parent as the source of the inflicted punishment. Until the child matures and grows up and understands reality, and they look back and say, thank you, mom and dad, you, you disciplined me because you loved me. God disciplines those he loves. And this is the Old Testament. God constantly intervening in love because people are so immature and they're not growing up. Last paragraph reads, In the end, in spite of human wickedness, God turns evil into good. He has, as always, the last word. The curse of Ham in his father's tent and the curse of the confused nations as a at the Tower of Babel or Babel will eventually be turned into a blessing for the nations. Uh, I don't like the wording here at all. I don't like it. I think, uh, there's a couple of places I'm going to point out to you. I think it's very badly worded. I'm going to give them benefit of, that, benefit of the doubt and, and suggest they didn't mean it the way it's worded. But the way it's worded, we have to ask the question, does God turn, has this worded, turn evil into good? No. Evil is still evil. God brings good outcomes out of evil actions and intentions of others. But the a- evil actions and intentions are still evil. They're not, they don't become good. He doesn't turn evil into good. So it says in Romans 8.28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He works for the good. Not all things are good. For instance, Lot's daughters, you know the story of Lot, and his daughters will probably come up to that in a couple of lessons. But after they fled Sodom and Gomorrah, they were concerned dad's genetic heritage would be extinguished. So let's get, get, get dad drunk and go in and have intimacy with dad. And they both became pregnant, and one gave birth to a son named Ammon, the father of the Ammonites, and one gave birth to the son Moab, the father of the Moabites, now, were there actions, would you put those actions under righteous, good actions? No. no, they would have to be under sinful or evil actions. Yet, Ruth is a Moabitess. And Ruth is a grandmother of King David, which puts her in the line of Jesus. So out of that evil, God brought good. But Ruth and the descendants, and the descendants of Ruth, who ultimately was King David, and on his throne, Christ will, will reign, that good doesn't make what the daughters did good. The good outcome doesn't change the evil actions of the daughters. That's the point. What do you think about uh, confusing the language as the lesson stated it was a curse from God that, uh, that from, from God that will eventually be turned to a blessing. They reference Genesis 11:9, which, uh, which is our memory verse for today. And if you reread the memory verse for today, uh, you will discover that, in fact, there's nothing about a curse in there. It just says God confused the languages. It doesn't say God cursed them with the confused language. So, so some people read it in, read in, that, that this was a curse from God. It's a discipline. I'm going to suggest um, that, in fact, under the design law understanding of the great controversy and the plan of salvation that we were just talking about, that for God not to confuse their languages at Babel would have been the curse. 
because not confusing the languages would have resulted in more human beings solidifying in a united rebellion against God and more human beings being internally lost than confusing the languages which stopped the rebellion and spread them and made it harder for Satan's distortions to spread through the entire population. So this was not a curse. This was a therapeutic intervention which makes it, from the very beginning, a blessing. Sunday's lesson titled The Curse of Ham. The Curse of Ham. Well, let me read it from Scripture. We'll look at uh, the NIV version of Genesis 9, 18 through 27. I'm going to read that to you, and I'm going to ask you, what, what do you understand this curse to be? What is, what's going on here? So, the sons of Noah came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the peoples that were scattered over the earth. That was an important little statement there. Because some people speculate that, well, it was a local flood, that all the peoples of the earth, um, this is only focusing on a certain segment of, of the population. There were still other people living other places. Not according to Scripture. But believe Scripture, all the peoples of the earth were descended from Noah and Noah's three sons. It means we're all related. <laughs> Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of his, its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and they walked backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves. The lowest of slaves he will be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth uh, live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. What do you make of this account? Who gets cursed in this account? Does Ham get cursed in this account? The title is The Curse of Ham. The title of our lesson, The Curse of Ham. I just read the text. Did you hear Ham getting cursed? Canaan got cursed, who's Ham's son. Hmm. What do you think about that, guys? You do an, a- an evil act of some kind. Well, we're going to call it evil for a moment. And your son gets cursed for what you've done. You know, in Ezekiel... It says the child will not be held accountable for the sins of the parents, and the parents will not be held accountable for the sin. Each man is accountable for their own sin. Right? Ten Commandments says generations. So the Ten Commandments says the sins pass down three and four generations. Okay, so what's going on there? I think you're, think you're on to something, Tina. <laughs> the sins pass down three, <laughs> sins pass down three or four generations. Uh, um, hmm. Well... Who did the cursing in this account? God or Noah? Noah? Notice again, the curse is not coming from God. I think it's often suggested, implied, that the curse comes from God. God didn't curse. Noah cursed. Was Noah's curse causal? In other words, is Noah a shaman? Uh, does he have some magical powers when he places a curse on? It's like a voodoo curse that, that somehow will, will have magical power that ruins the person's life and their descendants. Is that what's going on here? The Bible is telling us we have the power to curse others and ruin their life. 
Yes, no? No. Are you sure? Yeah. You know, it's often presented that way. He's cursed. He's a cursed man now. Were you thinking along those lines when we first read it? He's got a curse on him. Yes. Not disagreeing, but I'm with uh, Jacob and Esau. The words of Isaac played a count into the birthright, you know. So was there a birthright issue going on with Noah and his three sons? So the question, I didn't hear anything about a birthright here. But it's an interesting question. How does design law understand the curse? If it's not voodoo, if it's not magic, if it's not causal, natural result of some kind, which goes back to what you said with the commandment. Was uh, Noah giving a prophetic vision? God gave him a vision of the future, and he's just prophesying the future. Here's what's going to happen in the future. Or, or he didn't get a prophetic vision. He didn't see through the, the gateways of time into the future and say this. He, he made his own prediction as a human being based on his understanding of what was transpiring. For instance, and I've used this example before, how many of you can predict what will happen when I let go of this? Can, can anybody in here predict that? We all can. You all can. And it's gonna, do you have the gift of prophecy? <laughs> how can you possibly predict this future event without seeing through the gateways of time. Design law. Design law. You understand the laws upon which reality are operating, and therefore you can make predictions. Predictions that can be accurate. Is Noah making a similar prediction that your life is a curse now? Your life's cursed. Why would it be cursed? Is that because of his character? Ham's character? Oh, love it. Yes. And so did Ham reveal a different character than his brothers and how he acted? And did you know who the youngest son of Ham was? The youngest son, Canaan. Canaan is the youngest son. Which, when do parents have the most influence on shaping the character of their children? When they're old and grown up? Or when they're young? So Canaan, the youngest son is going to be under the greatest influence of his father after his father took this particular course of action and changed himself in, in maybe a, a, a corrupt and self-centered way. So here's how I worded this text in the remedy paraphrase. Uh, you can see the remedy paraphrase of Genesis on our website, just under the remedy. We've got Genesis, the Psalms, and all the New Testament there. But here's how I paraphrase it in, in the remedy. The sons of Noah who came out of the boat were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were Noah's three sons, and from them all the people of the, and all the people who populated the earth. Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. Some of the grape juice had fermented, and when Noah drank the wine, he became drunk, took off his clothes, and lay naked inside his tent. When Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father lying drunk and naked, he ridiculed him, and rather than respecting his father and protecting his reputation, he went out and mocked him to his two brothers. But Shem and Japheth respected their father. They placed a robe on their shoulders, and they walked backwards into the tent and covered their father's nakedness. As they did this, they turned their faces away and did not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his stupor and found out what his youngest son had done, he said, Your disrespectful, critical, contemptuous ways will be a curse to you and your descendants, starting with Canaan, your youngest, who was still young enough to be molded by your example. Abusive, exploitive, and selfish, your descendants will not be trusted. But uh, will not be trusted members of the family, but will become like servants, no closer than slaves to their brothers. Then Noah said, "Praise and adore the Creator God of Shem." But Ham's descendants, beginning with Canaan, will not be trusted members of the family. They will be like servants, no closer than slaves 
to their brothers. God will increase Japheth and his descendants, and they will get along with Shem and his descendants. But Ham's descendants, beginning with Canaan, will not be trusted members of the family. They will be like servants, no closer than slaves to their brothers. That's my paraphrase. You can see it's interpretive. Thoughts? Questions? Well, I have a question. Yeah. Why did Noah keep drinking the wine when he knew that it was fermented? Why didn't he stop? Do we have an evidence that, that he kept drinking after this one occasion? He got drunk. He had to keep drinking, drinking it. But he may not have fully appreciated if it was his first time drinking. We don't have evidence he kept drinking afterwards. Come on. You say come on. You say come on because you are a well-educated person who has long experience in our society of drunkenness. Prior to this, there's no account of anyone ever being drunk. He may not have actually known, and there's actually an argument to be made that the environment after the flood changed, and prior to the flood there wasn't fermentation of the uh, various juices and things because the oxygen levels changed, uh, um, uh, uh, fermentation processes accelerated, and so that this is the first time he had any exposure and had no awareness and didn't anticipate it. And by the time he was uh, had, had drank enough, you can I don't know if you know anybody who's drank alcohol, you can actually consume a good bit before you're fully intoxicated. So we don't have any evidence that he kept drinking after this, but it could have been, in the Bible account, the way it reads is, he planted his vineyards, the vineyards grew, he got grape juice, or he got his wine, and then he became drunk. So it presents it like it's a first-case scenario. Okay, got another one. But Lot knew it was fermented, and his daughters gave it to him, and he kept drinking. Why did he do that? So why did Lot do it? Yeah. Uh, Just what Proverbs says, Proverbs 31. He was drunk. Give wine to those who are perishing, those who are in misery. They may, they may forget their misery. He just had his wife die. He just had his... Uh, you think... You're, you're laughing at me. Uh, guys, put you... Just for a moment. Just imagine tonight, someone knocks on your door. You open the door. There's two men there. They say that they are from God and that you need to, right now, pack a bag. you got five minutes. Pack a, a go bag to go bag. And you need to flee your home right now. Leave everything else behind. Is that an easy choice for you to make? Really, think it, think it through. That is not an easy choice, folks, at all. We feel our homes we feel safe in, we feel comfortable in. We feel a sense of security in our homes. It's not that we love our homes more than God, but the circumstance would necessarily be quite anxiety-provoking and stress-provoking, wouldn't it? And there was no, we've got... Firemen, uh, there's a major forest fire here bearing down on your community that happened to California. No, that wasn't happening. You look out in the community, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the fire's coming from God, he's going to destroy the cities. But there was nothing in the, in the environment to threaten them that they needed to get away from. It would be quite... So just put yourself in that. Imagine tonight, knock on your door, and you're told to flee your home. That's a hard choice. And now he's out there. His wife just died. He's, do you think he's grieving a little bit? Do you think he might have trouble sleeping? Do you think he might want to take a medicinal to help him go to sleep that night? Give me some wine, baby. I need some sleep. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think Noah could have been disappointed with himself. And to further your point... He chose the most innocent person in the room, which was Canaan, maybe a little three-year-old running around, as innocent as can be. And Noah didn't want to cast Ham as 
fully the problem. Noah was part of the problem as well, and Noah could have been trying to prove a point lovingly to his children that I've made mistakes and I I see sin in you three. Um, cursed is Canaan. Yeah, I'll have to think about that. <laughs> the last paragraph says. In addition, the curse contains a promise of blessing, playing on the name Canaan, which is derived from the verb Cana, meaning subdue. It is through the subduing of Canaan that God's people, the descendants of Shem, will enter the promised land and prepare the way for the coming Messiah, who will enlarge Japheth in his tents of Shem. This is a prophetic allusion to the expansion of God's covenant to all nations, which will embrace Israel's message of salvation to the world. The curse of Ham will... Notice the curse of Ham again. The, uh, the curse of Ham will, in fact, be a blessing for all nations, including whichever descendants of Ham and Canaan accept the salvation offered by the Lord. Are they saying the, the curse of Ham will, in fact, be a blessing? Are, are they saying in this description that what Ham did was actually a good thing so that the curse would happen so that then the blessing of all the nations could come? That's what it sounds like. I hate these constructions. I hate these types of descriptions because I don't think that's true. I think, again, what, whatever evil or wrong that somebody's done, God doesn't turn the wrong and make the wrong a right. He can bring good out of the wrong by overruling the outcomes by his interventions. And this is what's described. But, but the curse itself wasn't necessary for God to fulfill his purposes. That's all I'm saying. Moses uh, speaking to the people, because this idea that God is the, the, the source of the curses is a corruption. Moses speaking to the people, Deuteronomy 30, 19, says, This day I call heaven and earth to witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, if you understand Hebrew parallelism, life is linked with blessings. Death is linked with Curses. That's how the parallelism works. Well, where does death come from, according to Scripture? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Note the contrast here between curses and blessings. Death, the curse, comes from sin. The blessing of life comes from God through Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, here, how about this one, Galatians 6, 8. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Again, notice, curse, death, comes from sinfulness. Sowing to the sinful nature. That's where it comes from. From that nature, reap destruction. Blessings in life come... Spirit of God. Okay? First uh, Corinthians fifteen, fifty to fifty-five. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we'll all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When this perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death 
has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The curse of death does not come out from God as punishment for sin. It is what sin unavoidably causes unless it is eradicated by God. And this is what Jesus has done. He has eradicated the death-causing principle and has restored the life-causing principle in the species human. That's why it says that he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. And so he's now the savior, the healer, the restorer, the purifier, the deliverer, the remedy for all who trust him. Hebrews 5, 9. Once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Wasn't he always perfect? He was always sinless. Sinless. Adam and Eve were sinless in Eden at the beginning, but they were not perfect because Bible perfection is not about sinlessness. It's about maturity of character. Unless Jesus, tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin, developed a perfect, righteous, mature, human character. Once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation. And we partake of that. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And we become perfected. Perfection is not about task performance. It's about perfect love and trust, like Job had, who was perfect and righteous in all his ways. No one on the earth like him. He was mature. He could not be shaken out of his love and trust for God. No torture, no tragedy, no, no tribulation. Nothing could shake Job, and that's what we discover. He stayed faithful. He was perfectly righteous in his trust with God no matter what difficulty came. That's what Bible perfection is. That's what the final generation will be. There will be a group of people, when the difficulties come, they stay faithful to God. They trust him still. They won't break their faith. That's Bible perfection. That's design law of you. And it should bring peace to you. The imposed law of you, perfection is all about the task you do. And you, and you were working in the garage and your hammer hit the thumb and you cursed. Oh, it's a sin. You better get, you better fall on your knees because if the roof falls in and kills you before you confess that when you're lost. That's the imposed law of you. It's corrupt. Uh, Monday's lesson talks about genealogies. Asks about the purpose of the genealogies and it gives several reasons for the purposes. One, historical veracity, making linkage uh, from, from generation to generation, that this is historically accurate account. Uh, reminds us of our fleeting existence, though. We're here briefly and then gone. Documents that Jesus is part of the human family. Uh, connects us through time, generation to generation, which is a good argument for which day of the week is the Sabbath because you have the Jewish people who generation to generation, uh, all the way back, and you can trace their lineage all the way back through Jesus, all the way back through uh, Moses, all the way back. And they're still keeping the same day of the week. It's never been broken, that generation, that, that, that group. So it's, it's an easy thing to point to. Is like, Look, if it was a different day, these people would have gotten confused somewhere. But it's never been broken. So that, there's, there's reasons for it. How has Satan, though, perverted the use of the genealogies? And if you want to know about that, 1 Timothy 1, 3 and 4, I urge you when you... Uh, I urge as I urged you when I was in Macedonia, stay, where, uh, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversy rather than the work of God, which is by faith. 
And then Titus 3.9, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. So what's going on here? And what's described in these two texts is the same problem that happened to our church in 1888. Same problem that is that the, that the righteous and the unrighteous have been fighting over since the beginning. And Paul lists it in the two texts. You read the two texts, he specifically states the issue in both of them when you put them together. Did you notice that in the one, he said that these promote controversies rather than the work of God, which is by faith. And then the other, it's quarrels about the law. And the issue is always about faith versus the law. What was the issue in 1888? Righteous by faith, righteous by law. Paul writes all across his, his uh, epistles that the righteousness of God comes through faith, not by law. All through his epistles. Faith, by the way, in the Greek, the Greek word for faith is P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis, pistis. One Greek word, and that one Greek word is translated into, into multiple English Greek word, uh, English words. Here are the English words that that one Greek word is translated into. Faith, trust, believe, belief, assurance, fidelity. One single Greek word, six English words. Many people will uh, try to make a difference between faith and trust. You know the story of the high wire act. The guy with the wheelbarrow goes across Niagara on a wire. And he says to the crowd, do you, have, uh, do you believe I can do it again? Do you believe I can do it again? Yes, they scream. Do I have a volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> no. No, nobody volunteers. And, uh, and the preacher goes, that's different. They believe, but they didn't have faith. That's an artificial construct that is not in the Bible. That, there's no difference between faith and belief and trust. And so Paul is making the case that the plan of salvation is through faith or trust or confidence. We place our trust in God. And we place our trust, we place our lives in God, our futures in God, our health in God, the outcomes in God, how things are going to work. We are responsible for applying in our own lives what God has directed us to, but we have faith that, that he'll take care of the stuff we can't take care of. We trust him with our lives and outcomes. Versus law-keeping of various kinds. There's all types of law-keeping. Our faith is in the rules. We have to keep them. That's the righteous by works. No, no, we can't do it. So, so what happened in 1888, we had the, the, the faith group, which, was, which by faith we become transformed. We get new hearts. We get righteous. We become righteous, as it says in 5 Corinthians 5.21. Become the righteous of God. That's the Jones-Wagner and Ellen White group. The, the law group, though, says, no, no, no. We are declared legally righteous by the righteous, by, by the righteous of Christ, which is applied to our account when we claim him as our savior. It's a legal adjustment of our standing in the record books of heaven. This is the law group. Because someone had to pay the penalty. The law requires punishment. And someone must be punished. And Jesus had to pay the penalty. If you don't get your penalty paid, then you can't go to heaven. This is the law group. This is the pagan group. This is the group that denies the truth of the three angels' message. And you want, and you want, this is the group that holds to the idea that God's law works like human law. This is the battle through history. Satan started his war in heaven against God's character. If you remember, Desire of Ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God cannot be obeyed. That if someone should sin, that God could not forgive. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. 
In the opening of the great controversy in heaven, this is his view. When you break law, justice requires punishing lawbreakers. That's imposed law. That's how created beings operate. God builds reality. His laws are the laws upon which reality work. You break those laws, you damage yourself. As we said, the wage of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death, unless the creator heals you from that process and that problem. And so the faith group trusts God to heal what they can't fix in themselves and follow where he leads. The law group uses some mechanics or trickery to adjust their standing to be declared righteous even though they're not. If you want to get down to a very simple test to tell which, which camp somebody's in, are they in the faith group, the righteous, the, the design law of you, the righteous by faith camp, or are they in the imposed law camp? Just ask a simple question. This question exposes which law they, they, they believe in. In the end, at the end of the thousand years, what happens to the wicked? Ask the question. Those who have the imposed law of you will have some version in which justice requires what? Not death, not just death, because the the design law view has that as well. The wicked will suffer and die in the design law view. The difference is God's role. Under the imposed law view, God uses his power to perform a miracle to keep wicked people alive as long as they deserve to torture them before he kills them. That's justice. You must inflict punishment for sin. Under the design law of you, God removes his protection, his restraining hand, the veil that he has put over himself that shields them from his life-giving glory. And his life-giving glory, the, the, the glory of God which transforms the righteous, consumes the wicked. And this is the infinite fire's that you read about in Daniel 7, the ancient days took his throne, rivers of fire come out before him, 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands and thousands stand. All the righteous live in this. It's not harmful. It's the fires of love and truth. And when the infinite God's fires of love and truth flow out and hit the hearts and minds of people who have been able to survive by lying to themselves, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. I haven't done anything wrong. They deserve what they got. And the infinite fires of love and truth hit them, they have immediate awareness of their own corruption and the pain and suffering they've caused. And, the, and there's a weeping and gnashing, and, and they're aware of what they've lost, and they're aware of the privileges, and they're aware of all the opportunities, and the angels knocking on the door, and the spirit knocking on their heart, and all the resistances, and all the hardness, and they realize, and they grieve. And some surrender very quickly, and some are so selfish and so, so resistant that they, they resist and they fight against the truth for days. But God is not inflicting anything upon them. This is the pain and suffering that unremedied sin causes. And so both groups believe that the wicked will suffer and die. But one group has God as the agency of death and pain. One group has sin as the agency of death and pain. And this is the big difference. And Satan's goal, if you believe God is the agency of inflicted pain and suffering no matter what you claim to tell yourself, you actually can't trust him. You will have some, you will have some mechanics in your mind that protect you from him. Well, I have an intercessor that, that stands between him and me, and he would punish me, except Jesus' righteousness influences him because I've accepted that, and he doesn't see my wickedness. He sees the righteousness of Christ when he looks at me because Jesus stands between us. I'm protected. 
You know all the theologies that these groups teach that pervert the Godhead, where you have one loving God speaking and pleading to one authoritarian God to protect us from him, rather than what the Scripture teaches. If you see me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And this is the corruption. But it, So if you get down to it, it's, it's two laws, design law versus imposed law, and you can expose it by simply asking, well, what does God do to the wicked in the end? He lets them go. Christ, who took the sinner's place for the purpose of our salvation at the cross, was treated as a sinner by the Father. And what did the Father do to his son? Let him go. There you go. He let him go to reap what the son chose. The son did not go through the cross unwillingly. He was not dragged there in protest. In fact, Peter tried to put a stop to it, and Jesus told Peter, this is the purpose I came. Don't you know I could call 10,000 angels and my, my father? Would, but, but how can I finish my mission if I don't go through this? I'm here for a mission, for a purpose. I have to do this in order to save mankind. Yes? Under the design law lens, I, I don't understand why God would resurrect after the millennium the wicked. Oh, yes. Great question. So why does he resurrect them only for them to die again? So you get to heaven... And somebody close to you, maybe your mom or your dad, somebody who, grandma, who took you to church each week and read Bible stories to you and, and, uh, just, and, and really was influential in you finding Jesus, is not there. They're not there. And you go to Jesus, and Jesus says, just trust me, they don't deserve to be here. Are you comfortable with that? Well, no, here's a record book. Here, here's a, here's a, a volume to the ceiling of, of their whole life. Go read that for the next three years, and, and you'll have your answer. Is that how it works? It's what many people teach. No. Yeah, I'm sure those records will be there for you to review. But you might say, okay, I see all that. But I know my grandma, if she only could see this, she would, she would, she would change. She'd love to live here. I know she would. She taught me about this. And so at the end of the thousand years, the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven. Righteous are living there. The wicked are raised. Cells in Revelation. There's a period of time that goes by because it says they, they build implements of war. So this is not, this is not raising an in. They build. There's a time of organization and building an implement of war. And the entire time this is happening, the gates of the New Jerusalem are open. Now, now, what is going to be revealed to all the righteous and all the angels and all the unlooking intelligences when the new Jerusalem is on earth, the righteous are inside, the gates are open, the wicked are outside, and how many come in? None come in. This is not the Garden of Eden where the gates are open with angels with flaming swords holding people out. That's not it. The gates are open. No one comes in. You might be up there, it's grandma out there, and you get a sign, and you get your magic marker, and you hang a sign off the wall, Grandma, it's great in here, come on in. Why won't they come in? They don't trust God. Imagine, do you remember the Branch Davidians, David Korash and Waco? Let's say you had one of your siblings, brother or sister, as a believer in David Koresh. They are convinced he's the Messiah. They worship David Koresh. They're in the compound. And they hang a sign out. On the, on the wall with your name on it. Tell me, come on in. He's the Messiah. Come worship him with me. Are you going into the Branch Davidian compound to worship him? Because your brother's in there telling you how great it is. That's how the wicked outside will see us inside the city. They will be convinced 
settled into the lie that they cannot be moved. And the reason they're raised is because God does not win your hearts for eternity by claims and proclamations. He wins by reality demonstrating itself over time. And he raises them to show they're not kept out. And then Ellen White describes this, and he says, when they march on the city in mass to attack, then the word voice of Jesus is heard, close the gates. Only at that time are the gates closed. And then, even more evidence, she describes that, that at that time, Jesus rises above the city in a golden throne, and fire comes down into the city and out the gates. Who, who's in the city? The righteous are in the city. Is, is Jesus destroying the righteous? So what is demonstrated? The fire hits the righteous first and then goes out to the city, out, out across the land, and consumes the wicked. This is Nadab and Abihu. They brought an unauthorized fire before the Lord, and it says fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Next verse, the cousins go in and drag them out, still in their tunics. If I burn you with a flamethrower till you die, will you still be in your clothing? This is not the fires of combustion. This is the fires of God's infinite love and truth, the fire of his character that we live in and we will actually be wearing as clothing. We will be shining like suns, like Elijah and Moses next to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It will not be harmful. This is another demonstration, not a claim. And then when you see them suffering, you know by experience this fire does not hurt. What hurts is unremitied sin. That's what hurts. And then after they're all dead, and there's only bodies, then the fires of combustion cover the earth, as Peter describes, and all the elements melt in fervent heat, and the new Jerusalem rides over the flaming earth, like the ark rode over the waters, and God recreates the earth anew, erasing all traces of sin except the marks in his hands and feet inside. Yes? Do we know any, or, or have any speculation, if, it, if it's the unselfish character of Christ as the fire that, that comes through? The truth and love. Do we have any more speculation, like an example of how that would like be happening with the fire as it goes? Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost? They saw tongues of, or streams of. That's what they saw. What they experienced pain, suffering, or because they had spent time in prayer, having their hearts prepared, they were transformed by that fire, not hurt by it. I'm going to have to skip some, uh, we're going to jump to Tuesday. Lesson points out, um, Tower of Babel wanted to make a name for themselves. And what is this? Well, the lesson points out they want to replace God as self. What's the, what's the original motive or where does this come from to replace God with self? Yeah, so um, uh, Isaiah 14, 12 through 17. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? That, 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 that is also translated Lucifer. It's also translated light bearer. It's also translated morning star, which in First Peter, Jesus is the day star or the morning star that dawns. Uh, that's... Greek is phosphorus, translated in Latin New Testament Vulgate, is Lucifer. Jesus is the Lucifer. Because Lucifer actually means light bearer. And Jesus, it says in John, is the light that lightens all men. Lucifer, the created being, originally was a light bearer. He was one who left God's presence and shared light and truth about God. But he changed himself. 
Jesus was the ultimate light bearer who lived and would go into the infinity of God's presence and come out of God's presence to enter linear existence to share light and truth to his created beings. And one member of the Godhead has always been a go-between between infinity and creation. Created beings cannot enter into infinity. God lives in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6.16. So one member of the Godhead who wants intimacy leaves infinity and enters linear existence. Prior to his incarnation, that was Jesus, and he manifested in the form of an angel. Lucifer, the created being, became jealous of Lucifer, the divine son of God, who was not a created being, but manifested in the form of an angel. So we read about, You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly and on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. He'd already had perverted ideas of the most high. I will use my power and climb up. Contrast that with Philippians. Jesus, who did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, humbled himself in the form of a servant all the way down to the cross and the grave. And thus he becomes exalted because of self-sacrificial love, which is the basis of God's kingdom. The more sacrificial love, the greater you are in the kingdom of God. The more you try to take, the less you are until you ultimately can't live in the kingdom of God. But you are brought down to the grave. You say, I want to rise up, I want to claim. But no, that is the opposite of the principle of love, and it results in death. You're brought down to the grave, to the depth of the pits. Those who stare at you, and this is, this is where we're going with our, where we are today in history. Those who stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert. Desert. No water of life. No water. Water of life. Woman at the well. You know, put the pieces of the imagery together. Man, the world desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let the captives go home. The captives. Jesus came to set the captives free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Captives in lies, fear, and selfishness. Captives in sin. He, he, he continues to lie. But notice what happens. The, those who see you stare, they ponder your fate, they say, is this the man that did all this? What's described here is the righteous who finally see through the lies. S- Satan is exposed as the cause the originator of not just sin, but pain, suffering, and death. Death does not come from God. God is not the source of inflicted death. Satan is the source of death, the murderer from the beginning, as Jesus said. And this is the truth that is cleansing the minds of the righteous before Christ comes, that they see the difference and discern the difference between the truth about God's character and the fraudulent God that Satan has perpetrated through this Roman imperial system upon the world. Is this acted out, that what I'm describing, this cleansing of the mind, this, this separating that we see that he is the lies and we hold him accountable and we place back on his shoulders the responsibility for all the pain, suffering, and death. Is this acted out theatrically somewhere in Scripture? The Day of Atonement. When the high priest leaves the most holy place and places his hands on the head of the scapegoat. He is not placing acts of sin on the head of the scapegoat. What's happening in the most holy place is the righteous having their hearts and minds cleansed from all the lies, all the sin, all the fear, all the shame, all the guilt, all the selfishness. We are being sealed into righteousness, and we are gaining discernment 
to be able to understand the difference so that we hold Satan accountable and stop presenting God as the source of pain, suffering, and death. This is the cleansing of the people. It says in Malachi that the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He will come as a refining fire and a launderer's He will cleanse the Levites like gold and silver, purifying them. We, this is, and, this, and this cleansing then puts the responsibility back on Satan and on his head. And, and that's what God is waiting for, a people who will actually have their hearts and minds cleansed and stop presenting him as the source of pain, suffering, and death. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for what you've revealed to us in Christ, what you've done for us through Christ. We ask now at this time in history that we will have our hearts and minds brought into unity at one with you, have all the distortions and misunderstandings cleanse out of our hearts and minds that we can be accurate representatives of you and save you what is right. We pray in your holy name. Amen.